in the world of freedom. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ich bin ein Berliner. This is Radio Goethe Magazine with Arndt Peltner. News and information from the heart of Europe. Hello and welcome to Radio Goethe Magazine. I'm Arndt Beltner. In today's program we have an update on the legal situation of former German internees in the United States. So stay tuned. But first, the news. Radio Goethe Magazine. The news with Nina Paula. Berlin. The sowing season may be just around the corner, but this year German farmers will not be planting genetically modified crops. Germany has banned the cultivation of GM corn, claiming it is dangerous for the environment. But that argument might not stand up in court. Berlin could face fines totaling millions of euros if American multinational Monsanto decides to challenge the prohibition on its seed. German Agriculture Minister Ilse Eigner stressed that the ban should be understood as an individual case and not as a statement of principle regarding future policy relating to genetic engineering. Cologne. Cologne's historical archive faces a long road back. Since the collapse of the archive building on March the 3rd, workers have been present at the site. About half of the documents have been pulled from the rubble, but now more work must be done to preserve the material. The documented history of the entire region still lays buried under 60 tons of rock and other debris. The workers plan to stay until the last document has been uncovered. Berlin. Berlin politicians are angry about street performers in Cold War uniforms. These fake soldiers are turning Brandenburg Gate into Disneyland when they pose there for tourists, the politicians say. Such soldiers never stood there, they told a newspaper. It's a falsification of history. The fake soldiers are dressed in American, East German or Soviet military uniforms and stand in front of the Brandenburg Gate holding flags. Some offer to stamp fake visas to provide tourists with a memento of their visit. Berlin's government has banned sausage sellers and souvenir stalls from the Brandenburg Gate and its elegant Pariser Platz area, hoping to preserve the decorum of a site that symbolizes the nation's history of division and unification like few others. But there's not much it can do about street performers who don't require official permits to pose for tourists. Witten. A German designer in the Ruhr area makes edgy urban fashion for young Muslims. The fashion label founder Meli Kessman started with a t-shirt bearing the slogan I love my prophet three years ago. It was the time the scandal raged over caricatures of the prophet Mohammed printed in a Danish newspaper. In many Muslim countries around the world, violent demonstrations were held and Danish flags were burned. Kesman responded in a creative and productive way and Style Islam was born. And the government began to tighten up its control of the several million alien Germans, Italians and Japanese in the United States. It's a vast job this, but the FBI says its organization has taken all these aliens under surveillance, especially the Japanese on the West Coast. During World War II, after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, about 11,000 German citizens living in the U.S. at that time were interned. 
They were arrested by the FBI and brought to camps like Fort Lincoln in North Dakota or Crystal City in Texas. I'm not talking about prisoners of war, I'm talking about German immigrants who came to the US to find a better life. Some of them fled Nazi Germany, some of them had been living over here for some time already when they heard the knock on the door. And the FBI also arrested many German nationals in South America, bringing them by ship up to the internment camps in the United States. On the phone now, Karen Abel, president of the German-American Interni Coalition. She was recently a witness at the hearing on the treatment of Latin Americans of Japanese descent, European Americans and Jewish refugees during World War II in front of the Congressional Subcommittee on Immigration, Citizenship, Refugees, Border Security and International Law. In, uh, in 2001, there was a bill that was introduced to create a uh, study commission to review what happened to European American and European Latin American internees, primarily Germans and Italians. And it has been floating around in Congress for quite a few years. And procedurally, without getting into a whole lot of the, the gory details, when a, when a bill is introduced in Congress, it has to go through a committee for review, and then it, it goes either to the Senate or to the House, depending on which side of Congress you're on, for, um, for a final vote. And we have never actually made it through the Judiciary Committee in the House, and one of the first steps that you need to go through is there needs to be a hearing. And so we were very pleased to learn in the beginning of March that the Immigration Subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee had decided that they um, were going to put together a hearing for us. And um, we were given a couple of weeks to pull ourselves together, and we went down there and uh, to testify. But basically it gives the subcommittee an opportunity to um, talk about the issue that's presented by the legislation. It's called the Wartime Treatment Study Act, and they uh, want to get the facts, and they want to have an opportunity to question witnesses to explore different issues, and that's what the hearing is all about. And then once you have the hearing, The, um, the subcommittee can go back, uh, deliberate, review the, the uh, legislation, decide if they like what it looks like, if they might like to change something, um, and hopefully you'll get a favorable recommendation out of the subcommittee to the Judiciary Committee, and then the Judiciary Committee will review it and send it on up for, um, for a vote. But the main thing is you really can't move with your bill until you've had a hearing. So it was a very significant first step for us. 11,000 Germans were interned in the U.S. during World War II. 65 years later, there's finally a congressional subcommittee dealing with this issue. What is the overall goal? Is it recognition? Is it about an apology or even about reparations? Well, since it's been over 60 years since the Germans were interned, um, one of the biggest things that the remaining internees, and I must say that their, their numbers are dwindling every day, but one of the biggest things that the, that the internees struggle with on a daily basis is that either their experience is denied because 
Uh, generally, all that's known is that Japanese Americans were um, incarcerated from the West Coast into the into the middle of the country. Everybody knows what that's all about. Um, and somehow the historical narrative about the time period during World War II doesn't include the other so-called enemy ethnic groups, which include which are the Italians and the and the Germans. And so, you know, as an initial point, the the German internees and their families are really interested in the U.S. government. First of all, admitting that it happened. And secondly, um, you know, I think an apology would be something that would be welcomed. Uh, I don't know that it's an absolute necessity. Reparations is really not something that's on the table at this point. In fact, there are many internees who feel that to get to, for somebody to try to pay them for what they went through is somewhat of an, of an insult. So we don't start out as that, with that goal. The study commission would be comprised of scholars, maybe attorneys, some former internees, folks that are generally knowledgeable about the issue, and they would sit down with the, with the facts. Um, they would conduct hearings, talk to internees, collect all the data that they could lay their hands on during the time period they're given, and basically it's usually it's just a year to a year and a half, and then um, make recommendations on what they think the appropriate action would be based on the information that, that they find. One of the things that's written into the legislation at this point is that the Commission would make recommendations regarding um, methods of public e public education, so that uh, the United pe folks in the United States and generally understand that, in addition to the Japanese American internment from the West Coast, uh, there was this whole other program operated by the Department of Justice that included other ethnic groups, because um, we think that's very important. A second goal is to make the um, records that currently exist at the National Archives more readily accessible, especially by computer for people who are researching this, because at this point it's very difficult to access the records, unlike the Japanese-American records. The other uh, goal that we have, and it may seem like a bit of an, an odd goal, but we've asked for... Um, for lists of all the places where people were either detained or interned while they were in the United States. We've asked for lists of um, exchange voyages because many German internees, like at least two, three, maybe up to 4,000 German internees were exchanged for Americans held in Germany, but we're not sure we know all the voyages Folks aren't, some of them don't know what voyage they were actually on. Uh, another thing that we've asked for is the, the number of births and where they were at the various internment camps and uh, the, the deaths because there are people who had family members um, who died while they were interned and to this day they don't even know where their graves are. And we would like the uh, commission to give us a hand with figuring out, you know, where they are. 
And then the, another aspect of it, which we haven't really touched on so far during this discussion today, is the whole Latin American program. The, uh, the United States collaborated with 18 or 19 Latin American countries and extended the, uh, the concept of the enemy alien internment program down into Latin America and over 4,000 Germans and their children were brought up here by military ship and interned in this in this country. And uh, there are many Latin Americans in particular who they, they don't even know how they got here. And um, basically for a lot of the remaining internees, it's a big confusing mess, to put it simply. <laughs> and we're trying to have the commission help figure it all out. What I don't quite understand is there was the past a recognition and apology and reparations paid to the Japanese Americans. Why is the U.S. not admitting that something went wrong with the Germans and others as well? It, you know, I get, I get asked that question frequently, as do many uh, internees, and it's, it's confusing. I mean, initially the, the uh, Japanese Americans... Of course, their numbers were much higher. It was over 100,000. Many of them came from the West Coast, and there was just more of them, and they were more interested, I think, at that time in, in getting government recognition. And their first step, actually, was to create a, uh, a commission to study it. Um, But the focus primarily of that of that commission was on the uh, relocation of the Japanese Americans from the West Coast. That was the it, it was you know you can read a lot of the legislative history. It sounds like the scope may have been broader than that originally, but in the end, it really was primarily focused on Executive Order 9066 and the and the West Coast relocation. So. Um, through that process, reparations were granted. There was quite a bit of money put into a public education fund. There's been a huge amount of publica uh, public education about it. And, you know, it's diff sometimes when you do such a good job uh, with your historical education, other things sort of get smothered. And unfortunately, in this case, what got smothered is not just the fact that Germans and Italians uh, were entangled in a lot of these programs, but also um, that there was a whole other program operated by the Department of Justice and a whole other network of camps that operated. And, um, you know, at this point, I think that the that the U.S. government just hasn't felt enough pressure to, to acknowledge what happened. There hasn't, um, and, it, and I think there's a great fear that this is going to turn into a big quest for reparations, which honestly, it isn't. It's a very complicated thing to get reparations. I mean, first the study commission would have to recommend reparations, And before you would ever come close to getting them, you'd have to have another piece of legislation. It would have to go through Congress again, and it would just be a long, long process. And 
our people are elderly and we don't have a lot of time to fiddle around anymore. Dealing with World War II and German internment in the US, I'm wondering if the question of the Holocaust comes up as well. Um, it, it does come up. Um, I, I try to be clear that um, the camps that we're talking about in the United States um, are in no way like the camps that were um, used for the Holocaust in the, in the Third Reich, and we would never, ever make those parallels. Um, I do feel that there's some hesitancy by the, by the Germans to want to talk that much about what happened um, with the Germans here in this country because they're concerned about, uh, you know, how that will be reacted to by people that uh, hear it. And, and frankly, there are people who react very uh, negatively, and they feel that uh, the people who were in the camps here have absolutely no right to say anything because they're German. Um, and then there are other people who, uh, regardless of what the ethnic background was, they're very sympathetic because they feel that internment was was wrong. So it's it's Obviously, for the Germans, it's not a straightforward issue, <laughs> and it and it can get complicated. But you know, the people who were in the camps here were their their rights were taken away. They were stolen away from their houses, from their homes, and their families. And they were put in camps, and they and they did suffer. And it's a human rights issue, regardless of your uh, birthplace. Karen, you are the president of the German-American Internee Coalition and your father was interned at Fort Lincoln Bismarck. Maybe you can describe your dad a little bit as an example that those Germans which were interned were mostly just immigrants, not Nazi saboteurs or spies. Well, my, my father um, was in Germany. He was born in 1919 and he grew up during a time where it was very uh, poor in Germany. Um, his father left the family basically high and dry when my father was about 10 years old and he came over here to the United States and my father became very involved with the, uh, the Boy Scouts in, in Germany and My understanding is from, from what he said that the, the folks that were at the head of the Boy Scouts when he was in it were very um, anti-Hitler. Um, my father also, because his father had, was a World War II veteran and actually was engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat and suffered depressions, among other things, uh, because of that. My father was also very much of a pacifist. And... Um, so when the Boy Scouts and started to get rolled into the Hitler Youth in the mid-30s, there was a lot of pressure on the teenage boys to participate to the fullest extent, and my father had absolutely no interest in it. And um, one day he was walking home from school, and he was attacked by some of his fellow teenagers who weren't so pleased with his attitude. He was about 17. And at that point, it turned out to be a good thing that his father was already over here in the United States because um, it was felt that he needed to get out of Germany for his own safety. 
and uh, they were able to put it all together. So he was over here with his with his father, and then once he got here, um, he immediately threw himself into the whole American way of life. And he and his father were very involved in the German-American community in Boston. Um, but at that point, no matter where you were, especially in a metropolitan area, although it did happen in the in the rural areas as well, the, the FBI was watching. They were anxious for tips um, and that sort of thing. And my father managed to get into their crosshairs, as did my grandfather, actually, because he was a World War II vet, and that alone was enough to uh, raise his uh, visibility level. Anyway, my grandfather was arrested and released. He was an American citizen at that time, and my father um, was arrested in September of 1942, and he went through a whole series of camps ending up in in North Dakota. He was in five different places over the course of a couple of years. And he never really, really knew why he was interned. And then once he got out, he never talked about it. But um, when I was able to get records later, what it said was that um, he had said in his various red alien registration papers, and also he had to register for the draft that he didn't want to fight. First of all, he said he didn't want to fight at all, which makes sense to me because he just wasn't that kind of a guy. And then later he said that he would fight in the Pacific and not in Europe because he didn't want to fight against his brother and his cousins. And the other thing that was reported in this was that um, he once observed to someone that Hitler built good roads, and apparently that was phoned in, too. And um, all in all, they just put the whole package together, along with their suspicions of my grandfather, who was a World War I vet and involved in some of those organizations, um, to intern him. But the really ironic thing was that while he was sitting there in the internment camp, he was drafted to fight in the U.S. Army. And um, he flunked his pre-induction physical, and he thought that if he could fight for the U.S. Army, he should be able to get out of internment. Um, it took a couple of months, but he eventually did get out. But even at that, they didn't totally let him free. He was on probation in Boston, had to report in uh, you know, once a week to his parole officer until November of 1945. So he was just one among many. There were clearly people who were interned in the camps, and I will never deny this, who were Nazi sympathizers. There were people who were very much for the for the fatherland. They believed in the Kaiser, and maybe they talked about that a little bit more than for the times they, they should have. Um, there were people uh, that belonged to Nazi-oriented groups, and they uh, came under suspicion. But some of the more vocal Nazi sympathizers in the United States were never arrested, and others were. I mean, it was really, uh, you know, you just never knew who was going to get picked up and who wasn't. So bottom line, the answer to your question is, I would say you mostly had butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers who managed to get in the in the wrong place at the wrong time, mixed in with a few of the more vocal types. 
You were a witness at the hearing on the treatment of Latin Americans of Japanese descent, European Americans and Jewish refugees during World War II. How was the response? Well, I just should say there were three panelists that were representing the Germans. There was John Criscow, who he wrote uh, the first book on internment called Enemies, and he lives right there in the, in the Bay Area. And then the other person um, who was on the panel was Heidi Gerke Donald, who also lives in the Bay Area, and she was a German uh, Costa Rican who was shipped up here with her family and interned in a variety of of camps. So there were there were three of us, and then there was um, a fourth witness who um, was from the uh, Hudson Institute in New York who was opposed to to the bill. So there were four people on the panel. Um, we each gave our five-minute um, oral statements, and then there was an opportunity for questions. And the um, the ranking Republican member of the of the subcommittee, whose name is Repre Representative Stephen King, um, asked, you know, he asked John Criscow if he felt that the United States was a moral country and where it ranked overall, and Mr. Criscow said he felt that it ranked number one. Um, uh, Representative King asked me uh, whether my father was wasn't maybe better off in an internment camp than fighting in the United States, um, you know, because he was referring to when my father was was drafted. Um, so that exchange was um, was an interesting one, and I and I took the opportunity to point out to him that there were many people who were interned, and their brothers and uh, fathers were and sons were fighting in the war at the same time which was which was ironic um, and I can tell you a little bit more about that because we did receive um, a question following that discussion specifically about people who had family members um, fighting while they were in the internment camps. Karen we met some years ago through the story of your father and you told me then that you want to reach the goal of an acknowledgement for the injustice your dad had to live through. Your father died in 2007 without this recognition. What comes next for you? How far do you want to go? When do you say enough is enough? Well, that's an interesting question and one that, you know, comes up in my mind periodically. But, I'm, um, you know, I will say that my when my father died in 07, one of the very last conversations that we had was, about this matter and about the bill and I said to him dad you know this has always been as about you as much as anything and uh, without you I'm not so sure how interested I am in, in, in going on because you know I mean I'm not the only one working on it but let's face it for those of us that are really working on it it's a huge amount of work and a, a lot of emotional commitment um, and my father just, you know, he wasn't going to let me off the hook that easy. He basically said, Karen, this is important, and I really think, you know, even though you're not doing it for me, I really think that uh, you should keep working. And, um, you know, I was with him when he died, and in, I would say, the first 60 seconds after he died, 
one of the things that I felt very strongly was, um, you know, I had failed him. And I would say I went for about six months or so at that point where I really wasn't that interested anymore. But, um, you know, you get involved in something like this over over a decade, and even though I wasn't interned and my father is dead, I've met some unbelievably fantastic people. I've heard some unbelievably horrible stories, and I just feel like it's such a simple thing to be able to get the government to at least, I mean, really when you study something, you're still not admitting anything. I mean, you have to have somewhat of an admission to uh, to even form the commission, but, you know, it's, it's a small thing, and um, I guess I'm so far into it that at this point I'm not that, I don't feel that it's hopeless. I feel like we're further along now than we have been for a really long time, and um, I'm just going to keep doing it. And I just want to reemphasize: I'm not the only person, you know, that's working really hard on this. There are certainly plenty of other people, but there's a great deal of uh, camaraderie, even though we don't always agree on the course to take. Um, you know, we're all pulling for the same goal in the in the in the long run, and I think not just for the German internees, but for the United States and our future, it's uh, really um, it's a good goal to pursue. You can find out more about the internment of German citizens in the U.S. at GAIC.info. That was today's Radio Goethe magazine. Our free podcast is available at RadioGoethe.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Arndt Peltner. <laughs>